Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you to run for your group. This season, we're building a campaign using the Deadlands Classic System, so grab your Player's Guide and Marshall Handbook, because we reference those frequently during the course of the show. If you don't have those, check your used game book shop or purchase PDFs of the book at PEGINC.com. Now, as I mentioned at the end of last week's show, this week will be a build-only show, so we'll spend the entire half hour getting our group that much closer to the end of our campaign. And I know I've said it multiple times that this campaign would probably run into mid to late November, and while that might still be the case, I'm not going to fill it up with fluff to stretch it out that long. When we hit the logical ending point for the campaign, we're just going to wrap it up and call it done. However, that's not going to be the end of season one, and it's certainly not going to be the last of this podcast. After the final build episode of the season, we may still have a recap session from my group, but I can also assure you we're going to do a game debriefing episode where I'll discuss the issues I've noticed with how I've built things over the course of the season, and I'll discuss the changes I'd make if I were going to run it again. Now, I hit on a few of these a couple of weeks ago, but I have come up with a whole lot more stuff since then. We'll also discuss what I would consider to be the optimal group layout for those who were waiting until the entire campaign had been built to start it, or if you want to run it again, but you want to do it with different characters. Once all of that is done, I'm anticipating running at least one one shot for my group, which will allow me to get the next game prepped as sufficiently as I think I need to before I start it. So, we'll probably alter how we do this show a bit, as I'll lay out what we're playing and give a basic outline of it, might even create a character or two, but the chances that we lay that out as thoroughly as we usually do on this show are going to be pretty slim, since I intend that to be one night of gaming only, therefore only one episode. After we do all of that, we're going to dive straight into Season 2 which as I announced a couple of weeks ago, will be Fallout. So if you're interested, grab a copy of that book at your local game shop or bookstore or get the PDF from the Modifius website, M-O-D-I-P-H-E-U-S dot net. I've also had folks ask me what season three is going to look like, and I got to be honest, I didn't think we'd make it through one season, let alone put a second one out there. So my answer is this. If you want a season three, I'll give you one, but I have absolutely no idea what that's going to cover. The reason for that is that I usually let my players decide what they want to play next. So if I'm running the next game after Fallout, they're going to pick. However, we've got another GM in the group. So if Jim decides that he wants to run, I'll shift gears and build a game that I'd like to cover, but that my group might not want to play. So season three will be a play it by ear deal. Could also be a game that you'd like to see me build. Never can tell. So with all that out of the way, how about we get back to the task at hand and get into today's build? And before we do that, I do need to cover something that I noticed when I was editing last week's episode and that was pointed out to me by our listeners. Yes, I made another mistake. So when we were doing the build, I named Ed Stewart's father Leroy. However, when I went over the group recap, I named that same man Leonard or Lenny for short. Here's what happened. As I noted at the end of last week's episode, most of the last quarter of the session was done on the fly with myself and my group, and while my notes were pretty good, this is one of those things I missed. And I don't have a lot of excuses on that, since I used my recording script from the podcast as my game notes. So, go with whichever name you want for good old Eddie's dad, just make sure that, unlike me, you're consistent with it. Alright, so I've handled the mea culpa, let's build. First, we've got to recap what we built last week. 
As we began, the group was either headed back to Wyoming to collect their airship or riding on horseback for Salem, Oregon. If they went by horse, they had several encounters, but they eventually got to Salem. If they used the airship, they got there without incident. When they entered Salem proper, they noticed that there was nobody on the streets. This should have bothered them, but they didn't find any signs of foul play, so in theory, they just continued on their way. They reached the house, and they made entrance. After searching most of the rooms of the house, they entered the office. Among the paperwork, they found a safe. Cracking it, they found three folders that gave a lot of background on the undertaker, including the fact that he'd been adopted. The last folder detailed where Stewart's biological parents are and had a note from Leroy Stewart that he was afraid Eddie would go to Portland and kill them if he knew about them. As the group took this in, a mysterious raven-haired thin man came to the house with Walking Dead in tow. He asked for the files, and we ended the build on that note. So, this week we pick up with the stare down with the group. Now, one way or the other, the thin man intends to leave Salem with the files Stuart wants. The fact that he's got six walking dead with him, it only adds to that. If by chance you have more than seven players at your table, add another walking dead for each additional player. If you have fewer than seven players, cut the number of walking dead down so that, counting the thin man, there's one more bad guy than the total number of your group. Obviously, for the walking dead, we're going to use the walking dead from the Marshall's handbook. Make sure they're equipped with pistols and rifles. However, we're going to do something we don't frequently do on this show anymore, and we're going to actually build our bad guy. Fortunately, you don't need any extra books to do this, since everything we need is available between the player's guide and the Marshall's handbook. And yeah, I actually built this dude out myself before I wrote this episode, so all of the numbers I'm throwing out there are the actual numbers I used to build this NPC for my group for tomorrow night, if you're listening to our podcast on our release day on Friday. That's the purpose of this show, folks. I do the legwork so you don't have to. Or at least these days I'm doing a lot of the legwork so you don't have to. For the record, we're going to build him out as a blessed. So if you've built one of these before, you'll have a decent idea of where we're going. If not, take a minute to get yourself familiarized with it. Now we're going to modify this a bit. And I know I mentioned I was doing things a little bit off the rules in an earlier episode when I brought voodoo and black magic into the campaign. But I had forgotten at that time that a certain amount of black magic is presented in the Marshall's Handbook. That information is deep in the chapter on abominations, so check it out and bookmark it as we go, because we're going to put powers in place off of that, plus one or two that I've cooked up for the game. Okay, so I drew my 12 cards for character building. For the record, here's what I got. Ace of Diamonds, King of Spades, King of Clubs, Queen of Spades, Queen of Diamonds, Jack of Hearts, Ten of Diamonds, Ten of Clubs, Nine of Spades, Nine of Diamonds, Seven of Spades, and Five of Hearts. Of course, we can drop any two except deuces and jokers, and since those don't apply here, we'll drop the seven and the five. So, let's turn these cards into numbers we need to fill in the character sheet. That ace of diamonds gives us a 2d12, the king of spades is 4d10, king of clubs is 1d10, queen of spades 4d10, queen of diamonds 2d10, jack of hearts 3d8, ten of diamonds 2d8, ten of clubs 1d8, nine of spades 4d8, and nine of diamonds 2d8. You probably noticed at this point that we're using some pretty high dice, and if we're being honest, some pretty high numbers of dice in our build. You might also wonder whether or not my draw is on the up and up. I swear on everything I value most that it is. In fact, I actually do twice because I thought my initial draw, which had three kings, two queens, and four jacks and tens in it, might have been a bit much. So I was doing what I could to keep it on the up and up. However, you can choose to put dice and numbers in however you want. 
If you want to put dice in the way you think that works best for you, you certainly have that right. GM fiat, that's what I call it. My thought here, though, was to not only demonstrate how we create a higher level NPC for the game, but also to be as fair as I could for our players. Now, in transferring our numbers to the character sheet, there are a couple of things we need to take into account. A blessed, or blessed, however we want to call it, needs good scores in Mian, Spirit, and Knowledge. And that Knowledge score is because they need to take Professional Theology. Now, I also need to note we're going to have a chunk of extra points to use once we've built out, because we're going to experience the character up a bit as if he'd adventured for a little while. So here's how I'm putting the dice in place, and I'm going in order from left to right, up and down on your character sheet. Cognition, 1d10. Deafness, 1d8. Knowledge, 4d10. Mian, 2d12. Nimbleness, 2d8. Quickness, 3d8. Smarts, 2d10. Spirit, 4d10. Strength, 2d8. And Vigor, 4d8. Don't sweat the 2d12 in Mian. I plan to up that with points later on. I just wanted the D12 there because I wanted the higher dice in that category. You'll note I put the three four dice sets into Knowledge, Spirit, and Vigor. So it's all going to work out in the end. Normally characters don't start out with Grit, but since our dude's been around the block a time or two, we'll give him eight points of Grit. Since he's basically working with spooky things, it's probably not going to come into play, but we're going to give it to him anyway. His pace will be eight since his nimbleness die is a D8 and his size is a six. He's got 18 wind, thanks to the D10 in spirit and the D8 in vigor. All right, so now we got to put points into attributes. Now, if you wanted to, you could just dump points into the ones you think will be the most useful for the coming battle. However, I tend to like to build my NPCs up since my group tends to find ways to get around the things I've set up. If I build it up properly, I can bring it back and reuse it later without having to make a ton of changes. In other words, do the job right the first time, and you only have to do it once. Thanks to D10s and smarts, cognition, and knowledge, we've got 30 points to play with to start. Again, though, we're going to have some more points to use down the line, so don't freak out if we run out of points at this point in the build. I'm also going to do these in alphabetical order, so just jot them down, then put them into the character sheet later on. We're going to start with giving him three points in Academia Occult. After all, if he's an occultist, he should really have some knowledge of it, right? Bluff gets three points because that might be something we need to use, and I'd rather have it and not need it than to decide I wished I'd put points in there later. Faith gets a full five points. This is a really important skill for your blessed, so we'll max it out. Let's drop four points into leadership. The group doesn't know it yet, but this guy is Ed Stewart's left-hand man. I say left-hand because if the right-hand man is your second-in-command, the left-hand man would be the third. So our guy's the third highest on this particular totem pole. We'll drop four more points into overall. Again, he does the kinds of things that should bring fear in the hearts of our group members. So let's give him a score that reflects that. Persuasion is next and it gets three points and I'm pretty sure I don't have to explain why. If you'll remember what I said about the mandatory things for our blessed, I noted that profession theology was needed. So we'll drop two points in there and my plan is to put a couple more in when we add points later. Two points goes into scrutinize, since you and I both know your group and mine will try to bluff their way through things. When I was going through things, by the way, I missed ritual. So even though I'm doing this out of alphabetical order now, we need to drop the last four points we've got into that. And with that, we've got our 30 points. Do the math. I did it twice, made sure I had it. Like I said, we're going to drop more points in once we finish the basic build. Time now to move on to hindrances. Our dude is very loyal to Ed Stewart, so we'll take the loyal hindrance and get three points to spend. 
He's also taken an oath to follow Ed Stewart and do whatever he's asked to do without question. So we'll take oath and get two points to spend. We're also going to take the scrawny hindrance because of his size. It's not that he's short. He's just almost unnaturally thin. So five more points. We're also going to have to subtract one from his size, so that now becomes a five. Now, there are more hindrances that we could take, but we're only allowed 10 points worth during a build. Of course, we could just take them since we've got GM Fiat, but let's build ours the same way the group had to build theirs. That being said, if you decide you want to do that, I'm not going to tell. Let's buy some edges. We need Arcane Background Blessed, so we'll spend three of the points we picked up to get that. This dude is also keen because it's a job hazard to not pay attention to everything around you. That's three more points spent. He's also got the stare, so we'll spend a point for that. We're taking Veteran of the Weird West, so we actually get 15 points to use to put back into our character. It comes with a haunting background, but let's be honest. Being the third in command of a homicidal voodoo practitioner with a chip on his shoulder the size of Montana is probably enough of a haunting background. Plus, you work with the walking dead on a daily basis. So I kind of think we're covered here. We're also taking the voice. So spend another point. This voice is a threatening voice. So he gets to add two to his overall roles. That leaves us with two points we can spend. Add that to the 15 we picked up for the veteran edge. And we've got 17 points we can dump back into our character. So before we move on, let's take a step back and up some numbers. Academia Occult will go from 3 to 5, Bluff will go from 3 to 5, Overall will go from 4 to 5, Persuasion from 3 to 5, Profession Theology from 2 to 5, Scrutinize from 2 to 5, and Ritual from 4 to 5. We've got three points left, so let's add another aptitude, Medicine Surgery, at three points. My reasoning for this is that if the group decides to attack and gets injured, our friend here can patch them up for the trip back to Ed Stewart. I mean, we haven't gotten there yet, but this isn't a kill them, take the stuff and leave kind of deal. More on that in a minute. We would normally need a background for our dude, but other than his name, which is Shelby Green, we're not doing a background. Mostly that's because I don't think we need one in the grand scheme of things, but also because we'll drop some background details during the conversation they're bound to have once we get into this, maybe. What we will note here is that Shelby has various tattoos on his chest and back, and they just happen to be of the various sigils the group's been finding on their recent adventures. What do they mean? Yeah, we'll get to that later. Now, good old Shelby needs some gear. Again, I'm not worried about gearing him up completely. The Walking Dead have the weapons... Shelby's going to be the one slinging spells and rituals at the group. We will say that he's dressed in all black and that it appears to be fairly nice clothing. I will put a cult peacemaker on his hip in a nice holster and give him 20 extra rounds along with a speed loader. But that's a backup for him. That's not going to be the first thing he draws. Okay, so now we get down to the evil goodness and we give Shelby some black magic. Normally, a blessed would get a miracle for each level in profession theology they have plus one. However, it's not really clear to me in the rules how we do this for black magic, so I decided to follow the same pattern. That means we'd get six black magic spells or rituals. I'm only taking five, though, and I'll explain why in a minute. We're taking Bolts of Doom at fifth level, Cloak of Evil at fifth level, Dark Protection at fifth level, Contagion at fifth level, and Forewarning at first level. We're only taking five spells because we're putting four of them at fifth level, plus I didn't really see the need for any of the others. And for those who want to complain that we gave old Shelby way too much power, I'd note that only two of these spells are offensive. 
The other three are technically defensive and defensive to Shelby only. So the players can still attack and kill the walking dead, but getting old Shelby is just going to be a little bit harder. You'll need to read the section on black magic to make sure you're up to speed before we run. Take notes if you need to, or do a small chart or two so you can keep track. So we've got Shelby basically built out. Now we need to level him up in a manner of speaking. Since I leveled up the power on four of the five spells, I decided to not use as many points as I'd initially been thinking. That being said, 40 extra points are now available to bump up scores as we see fit. Here's how I see fit. We'll spend 20 points to raise the number of dice in both Spirit and Vigor to five. We'll spend eight points to raise the number of dice in Mian to four. Let's go ahead and spend 10 points to raise the number of dice in Knowledge to five. And with the last two points we've got, we'll put a point in the shooting aptitude and one in speed load, just in case we need them. And with that, we've got dear old Shelby built out. If you're curious what this all looks like on a character sheet, I'm going to try to get one done fast enough to be posted on the website by the time this show airs. Check the information box for the episode. If I succeeded, I'll note it there. Sorry about the ambiguity of that. Sometimes I just can't be 100% sure something's going to work when I'm writing and recording about it. Though in this case... I'm pretty sure it will because Gabe's really good at managing that website. Anyway, so with Shelby built, let's get on with the build. Now, this might be a firefight, though it might also turn into some sort of negotiation. Shelby will be the only one talking for his side, so the group's going to have to beat his roles. And with the stats we've put out there, he's got a pretty good chance of succeeding. Unless I'm rolling, of course, since I can't seem to roll higher than a two or three these days. But anything's possible. If the group's willing to hand over the info, Shelby and the Walking Dead will leave without bothering them at all. If not, well, you know what to do. In fact, I'd argue that if any discussions have been at an impasse for too long, Shelby will give the order to fire. Run it, but also remember what we discussed during Shelby's build. Any hero that falls will be healed by Shelby so they can be captured and taken to Ed Stewart, presumably. Any heroes who run will be allowed to run so long as they don't have the information Shelby wants. After all, this is all about the folders. If Shelby has them, or at least still has the heroes who has them, he doesn't need the ones who've run off. If any heroes who have the folders run, of course they're going to be chased. Again, this is all about the folders. So that's something we both need to keep in mind as we run this. The folders mean everything. Shelby wants them and will do whatever he needs to get them, which also means that if the group decides to use them as a bargaining chip, they do have a bit of an advantage. To me, that means you can lower target numbers for persuasion checks from 14 to 12 or even 10 if the offer seems reasonable enough to you. Shelby's not a fool though. He and his group will not turn their backs on the players until they're at least 100 yards away. And even then, there'll be a couple of walking dead keeping an eye on things until they're 300 yards away. So where do we go from here? That kind of really depends on how this encounter went. If the group gave up the folders without a fight and let Shelby go, chances are they'll want to track them to see where they went. If the group fought Shelby and his group and succeeded, that means everybody's probably dead. So they're going to have to decide what they want to do and where they want to go next. And for the record, if they keep Shelby alive to try to get information out of him, he's not talking. Remember, he's loyal. In my group, I'm sure Scott will try to use his talking to dead thingy to try to get the truth out of Shelby. If your group has somebody who has that power, Shelby will tell them he was instructed to head to Sutter's Inn in Portland and await further instructions. It is the truth, and it's also all he knows. If the group fought Shelby and his group and failed, this works one of two ways. 
The first way is they all either fell or were captured. In this case, Shelby heals all that he can, just enough to keep them alive for the trip to Portland. Anyone dead will be raised as a harrowed by Shelby when they stop to camp the first night. How's he going to do that? GM Fiat. We'll say he does some freaky voodoo stuff to encourage Manitou to enter the characters. Give him one point of control and we move on from there. If anyone who died was already harrowed, well, you know the rules. They're permanently dead and out of it. If the group failed to maintain the files but they got away, they're going to need to regroup and figure out their next steps. They know about Portland, so the chances are good they're going to head that way. Now, if there's another scenario for this that I missed, roll with it and decide what your group would probably do. For those who are tracking Shelby in the group, the target number for the track will be 15 since these guys seem to be really good at hiding their tracks. They'll probably wait about 15 to 20 minutes before tracking them in earnest, so they'll need to make about four checks the first day to make sure they're on the path. If they want to try to ambush the group when they stop to rest, they can. Just be aware that the walking dead don't sleep, so they'll always be ready for a fight. And Shelby will be in the fight by the end of the first round. Actually, he'd go last in the first round. After that, it's six tracking rolls on day two, which will be the only full day they're traveling, and one roll on the morning of day three. At that point, they're in Portland. Now, all of these numbers assume the group is walking to Portland. If the players choose to use horses, they'll be moving much faster than Shelby and his group and could theoretically make the trip in about a day. You decide how you want to do it at that point. I'm pretty sure my group will ride, so I'll let you know what I decided to do in next week's recap. Now, if they were captured, they'll make the walk to Portland with Shelby and his walking dead. Those who were injured badly will be dragged along on makeshift sleds so as not to slow them down too much. Follow the previously stated plan for how long it will take. Like I said, if the group chooses to let Shelby go and don't track him and they lost the files, all they have is Portland. If they've got the files, they've got the last known address for Stewart's biological parents. If they got Shelby's orders out of him, they've also got Sutter's in. That makes proceeding a bit difficult for us because there's so many ways this can go. However, the angle we're going to go with is that they gave up the goods and allowed Shelby and his walking dead to get away with the plan being to track him. I told you how to do that a moment ago, so follow the plan and all should be okay. One thing to note, though, is if they fail a tracking check, they can try again, though the target goes up by one and stays there for each time they fail. Now let's go ahead and get the group into the city, since we've still got a lot to do today. The population of Portland, Oregon is right around 10,000 as we're playing. The actual population of the city was 6,717 about six years earlier, so I did a little extrapolation to come up with the number we're using. If you live in Portland and know I've made a mistake, I apologize. One thing we do need to note is that the city experienced a major fire in 1873 in reality, so we're going to bring that into our game. That means there are still sections of the city working to rebuild. A cynic would say it's probably the lower level income portions of the city that are still doing so, and while that is a cynical opinion, the truth is it's probably correct. So for the most part, our adventurers will be in more middle-class areas than normal, and there will be more folks looking for jobs and donations around the city to help folks rebuild. Breaking away for a minute, if the group came to Portland on their own, they'll need to get a hotel and start searching. Who and what they're searching for depends on what they know. If they don't have the files, they'll be looking for dear old Shelby. If they remember the names of his biological parents, they can look for them. I mean, the thought is that Ed's going to go after them anyway. So why not get ahead? If they followed Shelby, which is what we're going with, we continue on. 
Shelby leaves his walking dead just outside of town in a somewhat thickly forested area. If the group was taken hostage, they're left here as well while Shelby goes into town. I'd also note that even though he patched them up, they don't feel any better. That's because he's been putting something into their food and water to keep them ill and make them easier to deal with. So if the group's just tailing Shelby, he'll be alone as he walks into the city. He makes his way about six blocks into the city before turning to the west. He walks another four blocks, then enters a building. They see the sign hanging above it. It's Sutter's Inn. How long they wait before they enter is up to them. If they decide to wait for Shelby to come out, they'll be waiting a long time because he's actually checked into a room and is waiting for his instructions. Regardless of when they choose to go in, when they go in, there's a gentleman behind the check-in desk. He's a younger man with red hair and a freckled face. He's about medium build, and if they had to venture a guess, they'd say he's not even 20 years old yet. And they'd be right. He greets them and gives his name as Corey Blue. He then gets straight to the point of asking them what they need. If they want rooms, he's got a few. It'll cost him $3 a night, but a bath is included. Also, these will only hold two people, so they'll have to figure out how many rooms they need. If they want to ask about Shelby, they'll need to make a persuasion check. This kid's good, so the target number will be a 14. However, for every 20 bucks they bribe him with, they get a point off the check. He can't be completely bought though, so the lowest that target number can drop is to six. He'll tell them that he went up to his room and noted that Shelby has a room just about permanently booked here because he stays here all the time. He doesn't want to give them the room number, but he will note that they've got the rooms on both sides of the hall closest to it. For our purposes, Shelby's in room 10 and they'll get 11, 12, and if they need it, 13. Your group's bright, they'll figure this out. For that check, by the way, he'll also note that Shelby tends to stick around until a courier brings him an envelope, then he leaves again. If they ask him to give them the letter or to otherwise prevent Shelby from getting it, he's gonna refuse. However, if they bribe him with at least $100, he'll agree to get word to them when it arrives and not tell Shelby until they've had a chance to get outside to tail him. That's the best he's gonna be willing to do. That courier will arrive about an hour after the group gets settled into their rooms. And as promised, Corey will get word to them that the package arrived and the group will have about 10 minutes to get outside before he has no other choice but to notify Shelby that it's here. They can get outside and sneak checks with a target of five are needed to make themselves inconspicuous enough to avoid Shelby noticing them. This is one of those that I just get the results from the group, but give them no clue whether or not they succeeded because in their minds, they succeeded. They're not going to know they failed. So just take their results, compare it. You will know who failed and who didn't. Shelby will come outside. He's going to take a look around the area and then he's going to leave. Roll a die behind your screen and tell those who failed the roll that it looks like Shelby might have made them. He didn't. We're just letting him have this one for free, but we're going to make him sweat it a little bit. He'll head back down the street in the general direction they came from, only to turn north about four blocks in. He'll head north for another six blocks before he enters a church. There's a sign out front that calls it the Church of Everlasting Love. However, the group they see congregating outside with Shelby before they go in does not look like they're in the mood for love. It is a group of heavy hitters and they are loaded for bear. For the record, there's one sharpshooter there for every member of the group, plus one. When you add Shelby to the mix, that's two more enemies than the group has members. This is probably going to be a fight unless your group just plain doesn't care. Either way, we'll pick this thread up next week because we've got another scenario to cover before we end the show. 
If the group was captured by Shelby, I mentioned that they'd be kept in a small camp in a heavily wooded spot just outside of town. I also mentioned they were being drugged. Now, if it comes up during the walk here, they can make their checks then. Otherwise, this will be the point at which most folks would start getting curious as to why they're not doing any better. Have the curious group member make a vigor check with a target of 10. Success means they know something's not right. If they get 15 or above, they figure out the reason they feel this way is because something's been done to their food or drink. But what can they do? Unless the majority of the group has figured this out, it's useless against what they're facing. Plus, the walking dead have their weapons, so they'd have to do this unarmed. The smart move would be to stay patient. But if your group decides to jump the gun, let them. The walking dead will actually let them run off. Of course, they have no weapons, but at least they're free. When they enter town, however, they'll be entering chaos. Why? Because at this point, there's been a shooting at one of the churches, and eyewitness reports are that folks looking just like the group did it. And there's a rail-thin, preacher-looking type driving that point home. <laughs> yep, it's Shelby, and he's pointing at the group as he calls out, Good brothers and sisters of Portland, those who massacred our dearly beloved spiritual advisors have the unmitigated gall to return to the scene of the crime. For the record, he's using his persuasion on the group, and we're using GM Fiat to say he got a 19 on his roll. The group can try to roll to counter, but this is going to wind up not ending the way they'd like it to, I'm pretty sure. But we'll get into how it ends next week, because this is a good spot to stop our build session. Next week, we tie both possible scenarios back together and work our way even closer to getting to Ed Stewart. We'll also have a recap of my game, since we play Saturday night. In the meanwhile, I'd ask you to check out this week's episode of Role-Playing History. The gumshoe system is part of our show this week, and even if that's the only thing you'll get out of it, it will be well worth the listen. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Deadlands Classic materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Pinnacle Entertainment Group and are used here for entertainment purposes only. To purchase any of their fine books, head over to their website, peginc.com. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for license-free, royalty-free music for your next project. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, our website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we'll see if we can get our group out of the pickle they might have gotten themselves into, and we'll see how my group handled that pickle. That's next week, partner. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table. Oh, 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 oh